Hi, I'm Naomi. And I'm Kaylee. Coming at you from the traditional unceded territory of the Coast Salish people. And this is... Sorry, Murder. Listener discretion is advised. Trigger warning, this episode includes violence and mental health struggles. Take care. So for this episode, um, Kaylee has not seen the story that I'm presenting. It's going to be a surprise. So get ready. This story is set in a small town just outside of the outskirts of Princeton, BC, on the property. This story illustrates how substance misuse and mental health affect the perspective individuals have of the world. Sometimes, close-knit communities and our kin are the ones that hurt us the most. This story sheds light on the mindset of a murderer who just simply had enough heartbreak. John Koopmans was born in December 1963 in Burnaby, BC. He grew up living on a rural property with his family. His paternal grandmother was a member of the Mi'kmaq First Nations in Nova Scotia. According to John, his mother denied having an Aboriginal heritage. She had negative attitudes towards Aboriginals and to the extent that John considered her attitude to be racist. Yeah, it's heavy. He believed that even his siblings are anti-Aboriginal to some extent. He was unaware that he had any Aboriginal background until 2001. As a child, John did not participate in school activities. He didn't feel that he fit in with the rest of his peers. He spent much of his time working on the family farm. He graduated from the Fraser Valley Christian High School in Surrey, BC, and went on to take some mechanic and welding courses at the British Columbia Institute of Technology. He took some horticultural courses at Kwantlen College, but did not complete the program. He received disability benefits due to a spinal cord condition called spinal stenosis. Okay, so it it sounds like he's finding his own way, you know, he's into the horticulture and looking into trades, so what comes next? I think he wanted to try is is what I'm getting from this. So at age 31, he was married and had two children, a son and a daughter. Sadly, John did not contact his son or daughter for a number of years and has yet to contact them. John then fathered a third child, Jessica. He maintained a relationship with Jessica, but sadly she passed away from cystic fibrosis in March of 2014. So fast forward to 2015. John is now, well, he's not single. He has a girlfriend named Holly, and Holly has two young children of her own. John considers Holly his only close friend, and the other people in his life he thought of as only associates. John reported that he drank 26 ounces of alcohol daily, and has done so far far for the past 15 years, and never engaged in any alcohol or drug treatment. My liver hurts. It's a lot. In the past 10 years, John has sought and obtained Métis status, which he obtained just prior to his arrest. Ooh, his arrest. I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. A little foreshadowing. The day of the murders, John and Holly had been at Holly's house in Princeton. They spent the day along the highway collecting some truck ball bearings to recycle. Afterward, they went to a grocery store and purchased some crab, steaks, and cigarettes for the night. When they came back home, an argument ensued and John left the premises. Holly later testifies that a couple of hours before the gruesome murders, she and John got into a disagreement over cigarettes that he owed her. 
She said John stormed out of the house, but before leaving, he told her, I can't do this anymore. You're a bitch. Watch my dogs. Prior to leaving, he was sitting in a black armchair in the living room. Holly noted that he had been drinking, but the exact amount was unclear. He had also been drinking the night before. Okay. I'm still stuck on, you're a bitch, watch my toss. <laughs> what, is the, what is with that? Yeah, it's pretty rude. And it actually, in the court documents, she was questioned about whether that was normal behavior or normal language coming mm-hmm. from John. And Holly said that it wasn't normal lang- language or mm. behavior, that it was influenced solely by drinking it wasn't normal behavior no okay so his behavior is getting kind of out of hand upset is it just the alcohol like what's going on here mm-hmm. so get this earlier that year mr koopman's property had been ransacked and he was very disturbed by the event he had ruled out all individuals to whom he had given the key to except keith wharton and he persisted in the belief that keith wharton wharton was involved with the incident He told Jamie Holloway, a social worker at the Princeton Hospital, that he believed it was a targeted entry. Holly testified John was heartbroken to learn that Keith was allegedly involved in the break-in. John questioned Keith about a break-in enter into his rural property, located right outside of Princeton, which only a handful of individuals had the key to. So Keith is their friend and they think he broke into their house? That's how the story goes, and that's kind of all the fingers are pointing towards Keith at this point, because no one else had the keys. Uh, Keith, why? I wonder if they had some good stuff in there. Oh, they had stuff. Mm. Mm. So, Keith Wharton. Keith Wharton and his mother, Carol, lived in two trailers on the property. Keith's father had passed away and left him with a welding business. Keith's friend, Brad Martin, also resided in his home and slept on the living room couch. Keith's girlfriend, 23-year-old Rosemary Fox, occasionally lived on the property with her small children as well. That's a cute name. I know, Rosemary Fox, very (laughs) cute. In the evening hours on March 30th, 2013, at 331 Old Hadley Road, 43-year-old Robert Keith Warrington and his girlfriend Rosemary Fox were in Keith's home. Brad Martin was in the living room of the trailer where he stayed with his dog, Freedom, mm-hmm. and two other dogs belonging to the Whartons. At some point in the evening, the dogs commenced barking. Someone knocked, and Rosemary Fox answered the front door. Brad overheard someone arriving, and he went to look. Although he is unsure of whether anyone saw him, he did see John hugging Rosemary with an arm over her shoulder. John and Rosemary then went into the master bedroom, where Keith was lying on the bed. John sat in a chair at the base of the bed. Rosemary sat on the bed where Keith was lying down, and the conversation ensued. Keith, he's sleeping right now, or he's just laying in bed? I think he's just hanging out in bed. They're just kind of hanging out in his bedroom. Just hanging out? I think it's just like a little trailer hang. Okay. (laughs) Brad, who was watching a television show at the time, began to hear the voices in the master bedroom become quite heated. On hearing the voices raised, Brad moved closer to the bedroom. He stood on the threshold of the room. He then tried to calm his friends down, saying they should just be friends and not fight. At that same time, Brad noticed what he thought was an oil smudge on John's face. He told John about the oil smudge and then turned rapidly to get a washcloth to help wash off the smudge. He was standing only a couple of feet away from John. 
Brad then felt half his body go numb and heard an incredible ringing in his ears, which almost deafened him. He looked down and saw that he was shot and bleeding. Oh my gosh! Brad looked at John, who was staring at him in a glaring manner with the gun held on his lap pointed at him. Why? John was still seated in the chair at the base of the bed. Brad, upon realizing that he had been shot, immediately fled the residence and freedom followed. Aww. Freedom. Freedom follows. Subsequently, and it is not known who was shot first, three shots were fired into the head of Keith. Oh my god. A shot was fired into the head of Rosemary, and another shot was fired into her chest. No! Another bullet ricocheted from the body of Keith into the ankle of Rosemary. Oh. Carol Wharton, Keith's mother, was also on the property that evening. She was in bed, preparing to go to sleep. She heard a bang, waited, and then heard another bang. She dressed and went over to the trailer to investigate. On entering the trailer, she went to the bedroom and saw Rosemary Fox dead on the bed. She saw her son shot in the head with blood escaping from the mouth. She then believed that he was still breathing. Oh, that's awful to find. Carol Wharton left the property to seek help. Meanwhile, Brad had escaped the trailer and had gone to a lean-to to try to hide. However, Freedom prevented him from staying at that location by barking incessantly. Brad then realized he would have to escape rather than hide on the property, so he went up to the road. A woman, who Brad described as his guardian angel, was driving along the road. The woman did not open the door to her vehicle, nor did she let Brad come close, but she contacted the police. Brad and the woman saw an individual walking on the property while they were waiting for the police, and they were unable to see if the figure was John. Meanwhile, Carol was becoming more and more frantic for her son, whom she believed was still alive. When the first responders and the police arrived, she tried to talk to the police into letting her go back onto the property to assist her son. She was not allowed because there was an active shooter on the property and it was too dangerous. Eventually, a sufficient number of police arrived to search the area. You see, Princeton, it's a small town, and it was ill-prepared for an event of this magnitude. I bet. Calls were placed to various police units throughout the province, and a team was slowly assembled. And it's scary, too, because there's a lot of just natural habitat and so many places to hide, I imagine. Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. One of the first on the scene was an officer with a police dog who did a search of the property. No individuals were found at the time, but a perimeter was set up. The manhunt continued, and the police began to descend upon Princeton. They became organized and arranged to search Holly's residence. At the search of Holly's home, the police found the holster of a gun and a box of ammunition in the side of the pocket on the chair that Holly had described earlier. John was discovered the morning after the murders in a camper on the property. The defense theory was that he had not committed the murders. His alibi was that he was not actually at the residence on the night of the murders, despite being seen near the property that night and found on the property the next morning. Well, yeah, wasn't he seen when he shot Brad? Exactly. Like, it wasn't strong. RCMP arrested John on March 31st, 2015. After having found Wharton and Fox dead in their bed, both shot three times. DNA evidence linked blood on John's jeans to that of Wharton and Fox. There you go. Mm-hmm. So John maintained that he did not commit the crimes for which he was convicted. 
In the past 10 years, John sought and obtained Métis status, which he obtained just prior to his arrest. He is now attempting to learn about his Aboriginal background, including attending sweat lodges and talking with a shaman on few occasions. There was a pre-sentence report with the Gladeau considerations outlining how Aboriginal offenders can be helped within the correctional system. Crown told the 12-member jury that Camus had been, well, he had felt betrayed, believing the victims broke into his home and stole from him. What I'm really hoping to get to is, like, more on the why. He thought they stole from him, but, I mean, that reaction is just, sorry to be so literal, it's overkill. Mm-hmm. I think it's just years of heartbreak, and I think he just had enough, and there was, a, like, he was a heavy, heavy drinker. He just snapped. He just snapped. So, the trial took place over the months of February, March, and April of 2015. The Crown and the defense both called a number of witnesses. John himself testified. John said he was innocent, but Crown counsel Frank Dubensky called upon a dozen witnesses to convince the jury that the murders were planned and deliberate. In the agreed statement of facts, the gunman was only 18 to 30 inches away from Wharton and Fox when they were killed. The first witness who took the stand was an officer from the Major Crimes Unit, Corporal Timothy Russell, who said John was found in a camper on Wharton's property the next day. Two different guns were found nearby Wharton's home. One was recovered in the Similkameen River by the RCMP dive team five months after the shooting, and another was found nearby the home more than a year later. It is unclear which gun is responsible for killing Wharton and Fox and who the gun belonged to. On April 11, 2015, the jury convicted of two counts of murder in the second degree for the deaths of Robert Keith Wharton and Rosemary Fox. John Koopmans was also found guilty of the attempted murder of Brad Martin. John argued his trial was unfair on three legal grounds, including the judge erring in her charge to the jury. But three justices of BC Highest Court were not convinced. Koopmans is serving a life prison sentence with parole ineligibility set at 22 years. So he's gone. He is put away. I'm happy to hear that he's not eligible for parole for like a good chunk of time and that his sentences are consecutive. So if he doesn't get his parole right away, he could be in there for a really serious amount of time, which he should get because this, this one is so shocking. Like you said, it was out of the blue. And also because it's people who seem like his friends and like you mentioned, he was 18 inches away from them when he shot them with a gun. It's just, uh... Oh yeah, like it's your closest friends, and you wouldn't think that they would shoot you in close proximity, and he just really went for it. The fact that he shot them three times each is very clear that he wanted, like, it, he wanted them dead. Yeah. Yeah, I would be curious more information on what he thinks they did in his house. What they, what they took, what he had... There are options. Mm -hmm. I think there was ammunition is what I read in the court document was that um, there was a lot of ammunition at John's house that Keith stole, allegedly stole. Oh, wow. So there was guns and ammunition flying around on both sides. Mm -hmm. Wow. So sadly, it doesn't end with the sentencing. Carol Wharton still grieves the loss of her son and the trauma she endured after finding both Keith and Rosemary gunned down. Carol Wharton stated that as a consequence of Keith's death, the family business is gone. The property went into foreclosure and she had to move into town. Her life has also been changed forever. 
She has suffered health consequences from this event and the overwhelming devastation she felt as the person who discovered the bodies. Rosemary Fox's aunt stated, Losing someone from murder is like being stuck in a terrifying nightmare that one cannot wake up from or seem to shake off. I have watched and been affected by how it has entrenched and debilitated grief for Rosemary's mother, my sister. Rosemary mother stated, To learn that her death was no accident, and that it was at the hands of someone she knew and had called a friend, and the manner she died, there was simply no words. No words to tell my grief and my agony and my loss. There is nothing that can convey adequately how much this has impacted my life. We so often hear these stories and we know they're awful and heart-wrenching, but it doesn't end with that story. Like, it goes on and on. It's It affects the families and the friends and particularly the people that find the bodies. It's just, it ripples through long after it happens. And Rosemary's poor young children, like, she was only 23. Wow. That's way too young. Mm-hmm. So, friends, hold your loved ones close, especially now. Let's live by the golden rule, treat others how you want to be treated. And my personal favorite, do no harm. This week, we want to raise awareness for the ongoing war in the Ukraine. Donations can be made to the Ukrainian Cultural Society of Vancouver Island. Their website is www.uccvi.com. One was recovered in the smilkamine. Smilkamine? Smilkamine. Oh, this is a tongue twister. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not getting parole for until... 25. 10... Wait. I'm just going number of years, which is more. For at least 10 years. 22 years. 22. Oh, there. They, fought, they chose a number. Good. I may determine that the period of parole in, in eligibility... 